Welcome to another episode of NBRI, New Business and Retail Insights. I'm your host, Venki Shankar, Coleman Chair Professor and Director of Research, Center for Retailing Studies, Mays Business School, Texas A&M University. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome our guest today, Dr. Fred Feinberg, the Joseph Handelman Professor of Marketing and Statistics and Chair of Marketing at the Ross School of Business, University of Michigan. Professor Feinberg's research examines how people make choices in uncertain environments by using statistical models to explain complex decision patterns, particularly involving sequential choices among related items, such as brands in the same category and dyads. Example, people choosing one another in online dating. Fred also uses mathematical psychology, Bayesian econometrics, dynamic programming to develop models of advertising and consumer variety seeking. Fred is the departmental editor at Production and Operations Management Journal. He's a former co-editor of Marketing Science. He's currently an associate editor at the Journal of Marketing Research. Uh, Fred is also former president of Inform Society for Marketing Science and has co-authored a textbook on marketing research. Fred has a PhD in marketing from the Sloan School of Management, MIT. Welcome, Fred. How have you been during the last pandemic year, even as we are vaccinating our way out of COVID-19? Um, first, I'm, first, thank you for having me. And I'm also happy to say I'm fully vaccinated. Uh, oh, we just got our son vaccinated. So I, 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 in terms of COVID, I really can't complain, given, given all the crazy stuff that's going on in the world and people having so many economic problems. I feel we've been very fortunate. And we have a multi-generational household from our son, who's 14, up to my father-in-law, who's 90. So we've really been able to help each other out a lot during the pandemic, which I, I feel pretty fortunate for. Yeah. How has how life uh, at Ross been uh, in terms of your teaching and research productivity, I, I see that you have a lot of papers under re, uh, re review or under preparation for submission. So looks like you are being hyper productive. Uh, it might. It looks can be deceiving, Anki. Um, it's. I think the reason there's so many of them is that I made a lot of progress, and then COVID hit, and all of the other work started pouring in, and I started some new things, didn't make much progress. So, you know, I, I wish it were as nice as it looks, but um, I've, I've personally found it kind of difficult to do the department chair stuff and the editor stuff and the parenting stuff and get research done at the same time. So I'm really right. lucky that I have a bunch of really excellent co-authors, including uh, an amazing group of PhD students right now who's helped shepherd these things along. So what you're seeing really owes more to them. And, Ross has done remarkably well, the business school, uh, during the pandemic. They took it super seriously right from the beginning. Um, I unfortunately had to teach online, almost all of us did, but the school was really behind us in providing solutions that would, would work pretty well for most students for that. And we do plan to be 100% in person, like many schools are uh, in the fall. That's very good, and you're also very modest. I described you in factual terms. How would you describe yourself in maybe five words or less, if possible? Oh, five words. Oh. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm multifaceted <laughs> enough for five words, uh, so maybe non-multifaceted would be the first. Uh, but, uh, more seriously, uh, <laughs> I often joke that if people had to pick one word for me, almost everyone would agree neurotic is the best one because I worry about everything all the time. And worrying yes. doesn't help anything. It just makes everything worse. But there's no learning that goes on there. I think I got yeah. this from my mom. Um, also, there I, I call it detail-oriented, but they call it OCD. Right, <laughs> like right. One of my uh, ex-co-authors, Ellie Fight, said I'm a digital hoarder because I have to like 
you know, mark everything exactly right, but I find it keeps me in, in line. Um, let's see, others. Uh, loquacious, which I think is a euphemism for when are you going to shut up already? Uh, <laughs> I, I, like, I like to like, like just uh, chat with people. Right. Um, actually, but lastly, uh, the, the thing that I have on my, I think, Twitter profile is dilettante. Um, people yeah. are always saying to me, like, like, how do you know so much stuff? And I'm like, because I'm a mile yeah. wide and an inch deep. <laughs> I don't know anything at any depth. So I think I'm interested in just a lot of stuff. But I really wish at one point in my life, like, I'd love to take five years off and really just study machine learning so I can really yeah. understand it. Um, but as sure. you know, at your stage of the career, it's very hard to do that, like, to just take years off and learn new stuff. Yeah. So that's But, but that's good. That's a very good description of how... Uh, who you are and, uh, and thanks for being honest about it. But it, you know, it's good to be dabbling in a lot of things and being a generalist and yeah. you know, accomplished a lot, <laughs> even with that kind of a, uh, you know, breadth of uh, attention that you've given to several topics. Let's talk a little bit about your research journey, Fred. Uh, tell us a little bit about how, where did you get started and how has your research journey evolved over the last uh, three decades since your PhD? But it's kind of a wacky story, and I'm going to start a little bit before that. Um, I, I majored in math and linguistics philosophy at MIT as an undergrad, and I didn't know if I wanted to go into computational linguistics or math. And I went to grad school to get a PhD in math at Cornell for a while, and I hated it. I mean, it was, it was just hyper abstract, even though I wanted to do algebraic number theory, which is abstract. I just, I was like, where is this going? It was like, too abstract for even you. Huh? Well, okay. like, not to, no, I found out I was not abstract enough for it. And I was that I decided I was going to drop out and uh, go maybe try to get back to MIT for computational linguistics. And I called Pete Fader, who I'm sure you know, he's a professor. Yes, of course. He was getting married. <laughs> and I just called him to say, congratulations. We were friends. And I said, hey, I'm dropping out. And I'm thinking of doing cognitive science or computational linguistics. And you, you'll, you'll know all the people involved. He said, cognitive science, Eric Johnson is, you know, he's going to be here next year. He's this great cognitive <laughs> scientist. Like, maybe you should come here instead and study marketing. And I've never even heard of marketing before. I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Okay, maybe. Well, let's talk about it another time. And he said, I'm going to get this McAllister person to call you tomorrow, Lee McAllister. And I thought that was the end of it. And Lee McAllister, she's a professor at MIT, she calls me up on the phone and she says the magic words like, I'm sending you an application. You're coming here next year. I thought she was like this nutty person. Like, how could you see all this? So I just filled it in. So it was it was completely random. If I hadn't called him at that point in life, I would have been doing something different. So and then when I got there, um, I discovered John Little was this like incredibly famous, super brilliant right. guy, and he was willing to work with me. And I did dynamic programming for my dissertation because that played on my math skills. And then right. when I graduated, I realized when I got to Duke, it was my first job. Like this this method is not it's not good to confront data with. It's like right. things. And I had to start like learning statistics. So I really didn't start picking up statistics until I already had my PhD. And then I moved to University of Toronto after that. And I was well, really you know, it, Fred, that is very ironic because your entry into marketing was stochastic. <laughs> it's like a stochastic, stochastic <laughs> yet, choice, yet, right? Yet you were basically learning statistics after your first job, but go ahead, keep going. Yeah, I mean, just to illustrate it, like uh, one of my favorite authors is um, Gore Vidal, and he had a great quote about this. He said, everyone I talked to when I asked them, how did you come to do what you're doing? He said, the answer is always the same. I just sort of drifted into it. So I, right. when I read this, I was like, yes, it's not just me. Everybody was <laughs> drifted into what they're doing. Right. So yeah. anyway, um, I went to, I went to uh, Toronto and uh, I, Jingyo Kim was a PhD student there. Uli Menzerfika was a faculty. They were both Bayesian 
statisticians and I started working with them and I started reading all of this stuff and I kind of like a light bulb went off, like this is the right way to do statistics. Um, and I had already started working with Joel Huber at Duke. And I, I think we wrote, I wrote the best paper I'll ever write in my life with him there. And I just kind of found it like within five to 10 years after the PhD, I discovered kind of what I wanted to do, but I had to catch up. And so I've been kind of like, uh, you know, trying to make up for those lost years, so to speak, ever since then. So that's how I wound up doing what I was doing. It was really by working with other people and saying, wow, this is really cool. I'm glad to find out about that. It wasn't taking classes or reading books. But, but you were actually doing it while you were learning it. But that's wonderful to know. But you've been very modest and, and read a lot of your papers. So you've okay. gone through dynamic programming. I remember your pulse, pulsing dissertation. Yeah, that was dissertation, yeah. John uh, Little used to talk a lot about it when I visited MIT. And oh. he used to be one of the favorite persons that he will talk about to me. Uh, so I think that that's uh, volumes. And I think I, we met it when I was in University of Maryland, yeah. you and Caroline came over. Yeah. But you've also uh, picked up uh, Bayesian uh, econometrics. And then you have since then, you've also now doing a lot of field studies. I noticed that, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and then uh, in terms of topics, you you started with advertising in your dissertation, but then you did a lot of choice modeling uh, in different scenarios, uncertainty. But now I noticed that you're also, uh, again, working on a number of different issues, ranging from brand equity to uh, uh, you know, gift giving or donation, a yeah. charitable behavior. So you know, tell us a little bit about what are some of the exciting projects that you're working on and uh, where do you see the, them actually leading up to? All of them, almost all, with very few exceptions, are, are linked by one thing, and it's the availability of customer records. Like, right. I, and I'm sure you try to acquaint students in your classes with, right. if you have individuals over time, you can understand right. anything like a billion times better than cross-sectional data or one survey. Right. And, you know, sure. you remember back when that data was crazy hard to get, there was scanner panel data and that was right. the whole world. And right. that's, that's like a million years ago now, like everything is producing customer records. So right. whereas we used to have to beg companies for years to give us that data, now it's a little bit the other way around. <laughs> they have so much data, they don't know what to do with it. So a lot of the work I'm doing now is scalable, kind of scalable Bayesian inference. Like how do we, because Bayes does not scale well. Like, you know, it's right. billions of billions I, I, of I was going to say that's an oxymoron, scalable Bayesian, right? Almost like, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I think there's a lot going on in that space now. One of the students who just graduated from here, Long Zhu Chen, who's at UNC now, <laughs> His dissertation was on really scalable Bayesian inference, particularly non-parametric inference. And there's a lot of people that are, you know, kind of responding to that call. Cause I mean, you, you know all this, but people listening might not. It's like Bayesians are the school marms and cl pearl clutchers of the statistical world. They're like, oh, you came up with boosting and bagging or random forest. That's great. But now let us tell you how to do it right. It's going to be 18,000 <laughs> times slower, but it's going to be theoretically correct. And frankly, I think the people in machine learning have done us a real service by saying, we need answers today, not in three months when your Bayesian algorithm is done. So, you know, we've moved a little bit away from this idea of we need the full joint distribution of everything under the sun because right. companies can't wait for that, right? right, right. So, um, a lot of what's going on now, I think that's really interesting is how do we leverage real-time customer data, longitudinal data, data over time on individuals, to make better decisions to help them and to help the company. 
Like, <laughs> I, I don't see marketing, and I'm sure you agree with this statement. I don't even have to ask you, but sometimes yeah, people yeah. say, oh, marketing, you're trying to make people buy stuff that they don't need. It's like, oh, that's <laughs> so wrong on every yeah. level. Like, cause they're yeah. never, they're gonna go away. They'll be unhappy. Yeah. It doesn't serve anybody. So, you know, I see it as we want to use data to help connect people with products and services that actually make their lives work better. Yeah. And companies don't waste their resources. Like I always tell students, like how many times do you see an ad and you say, I have no interest in this. So yeah. they wasted their money, you wasted your time. It's a total loss. So how yeah. do you leverage all these data? So like you mentioned charities, I have a bunch yeah. of projects going with PhD student, Gwen Ahn and Kian Lee, one of the ones who graduated years ago on like, how do we do charitable donations better? Everyone agrees charities are important, but I'll bet you get Thank asked much, all yeah. the time for money. And you're like, you just asked, like I just gave it, it. It's, it's, it's really, there's a lot of wasted communication there. How do we make this better so that charities can get the support they need and people are not overwhelmed and bored by requests? This seems like something that data should enable us to do better. Um, you know, one of the other projects that uh, uh, this Gwen, uh, she's a fifth year PhD student, is working on is uh, with the, uh, a nonprofit, a, the University Musical Society here. They want to sell tickets to people. And when they sell you, send you a brochure, it's like, okay, here's the hundred performances we have this semester. Do you really want to look through all of that and figure out which three tickets you want? We can use data on gazillions of past ticket sales so that when you log in, it's like, hey, Venki, we know you you would love these three tickets. Like, why don't you click here and we're done? And the problem is I think most companies have no expertise how to leverage this individual level data plus your data to help you make better decisions. So a lot of the projects that we're doing, I mean, I can go on and on about them. You know, there's like car data and mobile health optimization is something that John Wan Choi, who's an advanced PhD student also, he's working on, um, how do we pick advert, individual ad for people? But all of it is how do companies intervene in a way that's not overwhelming for you and not wasting. You know, that is very interesting, Fred, because what you're saying is uh, ideally marketing is the process, business process of matching customer needs yes. with uh, the firm's offering. So you're saying that uh, now increasingly with the increased data availability and the, and the new methods available that we can now better match this. And uh, part of that is recommend, uh, recommendation systems or uh, recommender system, exactly. uh, which is really uh, based on analysis of uh, the past behavior and past choices. That also links to what you were originally investigating choices under uncertainty and uh, choices under different considerations and different environments and contexts. So in a way that you, you were actually able to blend some of the, your previous research to what may be emerging with the different kind of toolkits now we have at our disposal. So walk us briefly through some, maybe pick one or two of your research and then see what is some of the, what are some of the substantive insights you're able to get out of doing these new sets of research, whether it's scalable, you know, uh, narrowing choice, recommendation systems that offer brings insights, maybe a couple of to talk about it in detail. Uh, I'll, I'll pick one that's, um, it, it, I'll pick it because it's, it's a bit odd, but everyone finds it interesting. Uh, about seven or eight years ago, I met uh, Elizabeth Brooke, who's a professor of quantitative sociology here at a seminar, and she's like, sociologists 
just don't focus on individual choices. We don't really have the data, but I have all this dating site data and I really want to understand how people pick spouses. Isn't that the most important decision you ever make in your life? And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) If you want to look at at, at deep unhappiness, a bad spouse choice will cause that faster than a house that you could sell or something. So um, we, we, we actually got some fairly quickly and uh, we spent, I did my sabbatical at Stanford for one of the semesters and we basically sat in a room all semester and analyzed this choice data, people choosing each other. It was fascinating. And we wanted to say like, what makes people attracted to one another? Can we use choice models to answer this question that sociologists have been asking for centuries, if not millennia, if you want to call them philosophers instead of sociologists, like what, and and the way they did it is, let's talk to happy couples that are married a long time and let's look at divorced couples and maybe there are some themes that will pop out. But as we know in marketing, you don't want to ask people why they do things cause it's not always so accurate. Like people all tell you, oh, I love to exercise and recycle. They don't actually do those things. So she's like, let's just look at the data. And we actually used all this nonlinear spline, God knows what, latent classes. And we were able to pull out um, very heterogeneously the kinds of rules that people use to screen one one another online. And what I loved about this is sociologists really want to answer these questions. And in marketing, I think one of our claims to fame is that we really have developed choice theory and choice models beyond almost any other area of academia, I would say even more than statistics, certainly in applying this hierarchical Bayes approach. And we were able to take data from a dating site. I mean, it's right off their servers and say to them, if you have this person, this is who you should be fixing them up with just based on who they're, oh, I should have mentioned, we just look at who they're clicking on and who they're writing to. And we can pretty much nail the kind of person they're interested in without asking them. So it's a little bit like a recommendation engine, but it's only using the kinds of things that they look at. And we have like 50 variables. Like, you know, it's not just like height, weight, do people like your picture? It's like, do you smoke? Are you divorced? Do you have kids? You know, it's tons of stuff about you, how far away you are. And what's interesting is we can say something like, you know, that that you might make you laugh. Like if you're a guy, Smoking is about the same as three inches in height. We can make very strange trade-offs like that. So you came up with a system for online dating platforms that could allow their users to better target and better choose. But what did you learn uh, in terms of how people seem to choose each one another? Is it is there anything about their filtering mechanism? Is there anything about their preferences that that seem uh somewhat new well it's funny you should ask that but we wanted to call the paper as a joke we referred to it this way amongst ourselves as everything your mother told you is true (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately the results were a little bit on the sexist side like Uh. for women youth and weight seem to matter quite a bit and for men height seems to matter quite a bit um as like main physical things but we did find a bunch of other things. We we also joked about this. We called it the misery loves company finding. Divorced people seem to like other divorced people. Once you regress out age and everything else, I think it was more like, I don't want to. I don't want to start again with someone in a first marriage, and I want someone who knows what I've gone through. Right. Okay. And and some interestingly, there are some smokers, for instance, that only wanted other smokers, and some that didn't. Uh, we were surprised by this. We thought it would be homophily, like people would like people just like themselves, and that wasn't always true. Also, this idea that men are looking for much younger women, not true. 
not true. Uh, we find that almost everyone is looking for someone within five years of them, or more accurately, within 10 to 15% of their own age. It's like you see this in the utility function and then a huge drop off. And you know, you hear these stories about how like you know, 50 year old men are looking for 23 year old women. It's like they we see them clicking on their profiles, but they don't write to them. They just know that that's not going to work out. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of the stuff that you're told really isn't accurate. The most surprising thing is there's this notion that women find it so hard to date. It's exactly the opposite. Um, online women are dramatically more popular than men. They're contacted radically more than men are. And this is a finding from another research group that if you look at percentiles of appearance, women in the 25th percentile of appearance are contacted as often as men in the 90th percentile of appearance. So it's kind of like a woman's world in the online dating market. I think a more accurate statement would be it's hard to find good men. <laughs> I don't, and I can't judge that. So, um, so there you go. Some headlines, a few good men, uh, and you know, opposites attract. You know, there can be a lot of right. Like it wasn't of, really uh, opposites. There's a lot of homophily in um, in, in some, ethnicity and okay. and, and uh, religion. Yeah. Okay. Hey, is it partially also due to the fact that who signs on to these platforms? Maybe yes. people who are already looking, they have had uh, some expectations, some experiences, and so they have already some criteria in mind, as opposed to the general population oh, yeah. who uh, may not be totally representative of the uh, people coming to the platform. I should have mentioned this. This was a pay site, which means okay. that people who are serious, they're marriage-oriented. Right. Because right. um, unfortunately, on a site like OkCupid, which is fantastic, it's Our got Tinder people who are yeah, like, yeah. well, Tinder's yeah. a whole different, Tinder, we don't get a lot of, we'd love data from Tinder, but it's like swipe left, swipe right, there's, right. you don't see much about the other person, right. but on pay sites, you get like 30 or 40 variables on each person, that, and you can scan by them, like you can say, only show me people within 10 miles right. of me, and anyway, on like a site like OkCupid, you've got people that are looking for just friends, or one of right. their categories used to be, I think, monogamish. Like, it would be great if I have a long-term relationship, but it would be fine to have casual dating. And that's too much, too many different things going on. Right. So yeah. we were pretty much looking at people, I would say, from their early 30s through their mid-50s, very mm -hmm. marriage-oriented, because they were, we would call them pretty serious. They're paying every month. But I agree right. with you, uh, the dating system in general is the Wild West in terms of what people are looking for. But this is excellent insights. Now, talk a little, a uh, little bit about some of your other project, if you want to. Some of uh, the sure. more There's recent a ones. Bunch of them. The the only the, the other one that I I don't I don't want to say it's like better than the others, but the one that I think goes over really well is we all know in marketing about conjoint analysis. It's right. like another one of our greatest hits. It was it came out of psychometrics, but it was really Paul Green and Sina uh, Srinivasan that really brought it into the world. Um, right. so it's, it's a marketing thing and it's it's used in tens of thousands of products a year but the one thing that it's not good for is style and everybody knows that how products look is important and right. you know you can put pictures in a conjoint but you can't put 500 different pictures in a conjoint that's too many levels so there's been this really you know i would say it's a wall like how do you deal with product styling and you can say it doesn't matter we'll just say that this car you know, gets 30 miles a gallon. I don't think, I think yeah. how cars look is important. I think how most products- so, so aesthetic design is not very easy to implement in Kanjan. I get it, yeah. It's not. And some yeah. people have tried to do this. Uh, Eric Bradlow worked on it. Ellie Fight worked on it. A few, but so I, this is not me. Um, 
uh, a group out of engineering here that I work right, with. I noticed well. that you work with the mechanical engineering. Yeah, it's right from across. the design science program. We have a PhD program and now a master's program in design science. And they have to learn engineering and psychology and marketing and statistics. They learn all of it. And we started this now quite a while ago, more like five or six years. Um, can we create something that it's conjoint online and it generates images? And when you click on something, it uses machine learning to generate new images in real time. So it generates it, not just an image, a 3D movable car. So if you say, I like this car, it's like, oh, okay, let's move the other car a little and make it a little bit better. Or let's make this one a little bit more expensive. How do we get the right trade-offs? And you don't have to teach anybody anything. It's like, here's a car. You can drag it around. You can look at it from three dimensions, pick the one you like better. It generates new cars for you. And it works. Um, we can actually do 3D real-time design optimization completely inside conjoint where there's a a product topology model basically for the entire car and but I, I assume I assume this is fantastic because I assume that this is a general principle it you is. may have done this only for cars but you you could think of this being useful in so many situations for example retailing a retailer can build a design a store layout uh, can also uh, try different bundles and assortments and see how people might be uh, incline in terms of preferences and utilities so that you can optimally price them also in conjunction with the design. So it looks like uh, it has uh, a wide uh, usability in different situations. As long as the space, I, I, a whole store is a very high dimensional design space. Right. But for Maybe most you products, just break it like down like into yeah, appliances, for instance, like it really matters how appliances look. Sometimes people will say, this didn't get good reviews, but it will look so nice in my kitchen. <laughs> like, and to just say, that doesn't matter. That's just wrong. So um, what's nice about this is if you design things with CAD, computer-aided design, you've right. already, you already have a product design model and that can be put into one of these product topology models. The only thing is really setting up the machine learning system, which mm -hmm. these very, very smart mechanical engineering PhDs figured out how to do. And then in real time, we do machine learning and then hierarchical base. It's all the greatest hits of statistical okay, very marketing. good, yeah. And at but the it, end, it's like, yeah. Venki, this is the car that, that you like best. This is the car, yeah. but do you want to pay for it? So then we look at how much it would be to actually build that. So we've been doing that for years. And what I like about it is it's it's slick. It actually solves a real problem with, and anyone can try it. It's online. Anybody can go there and try this out um, and see that it works. And, and the cars evolve over time to something that you like. But can I also take this and apply to, let's say, uh, apparel design, fashion oh, yeah. design, yeah, sure. because it looks like looks yeah. like some of the uh, principles are common. But well, one of the questions is that in conjoined is the overwhelming number of combinations that could uh, overwhelm uh, a, um, a respondent. Uh, how do you solve that in this? Uh, is it more adaptive? So so that it, you, oh, it's adaptive. Oh yes, yeah, totally. Yeah, without adapt, yeah, you asked the right question. Without adaptive, you can just forget this. Um, so it might say something like, for let's say it's a shirt for you. It might right. be like, um, he really doesn't like shirts with this texture. So he loves things that are very smooth and cleanly woven. Like, so we're just going to move into that part of the space. It learns this about you over time. Or for cars, for instance, Benki likes a car that's sleek. He doesn't like boxy cars. 
Otherwise, as you said, the space of possible car designs is preposterously large. Right. And so without the adaptivity and without a machine learning model to update the parameters in real time, because we have to just, we have to go back to the server and optimize the next two car designs using utility balance and a bunch of other stuff within two to three seconds. So it's 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 tough. It's a tough problem, and they cracked it. Um, but you know, if we had super fast computers, we could even do a much simultaneously. Because we don't yeah. we don't have colors or interiors right now. There's about um, depending on how you count it, there's about 38 parameters that determine the design space, but they're all continuous. It's moving around continuously. But a real car has a stereo inside, right? It has like a layout of the interior. We think we can do this eventually. It would just require a bit more uh, computer power and work. Yeah, that's fascinating. So speaking about these advancements, where do you see in five to ten years from now? where uh, marketing research is headed and how we can help managers and public policy officials make better decisions. Um, and you started with the methodology that we started with scanner data sets and then we moved to customer level data. Now we have proliferation of data coming from all uh, sources, different device usage, and then interaction, social data. Um, we have these tools of machine learning, AI, uh, plus, we have all these new design possibilities that you talked about and using simulation, um, virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, whatever. Uh, it is almost sounding unreal. <laughs> right? Uh, so uh, where do you think we are headed in the next five to 10 years? Before giving an answer, I'm really glad you said public policy people because right. a lot of the stuff we do in marketing, people don't realize can actually inform, like for instance, you want a healthier population. You want kids that don't start to smoke and right. people that take up exercise. And a lot of these nudges um, fit into what I'm gonna say. I think we're at a unique time in history, like the great convergence. All of these data are coming together from individuals, like where they go, what they do, who they do it with. And in mobile health, which is something that we're working on in one of our projects, um, it, people actually say something like, I want to stop smoking. Can mm. you nudge me to see how I'm doing? And if you nudge people too much, they're like, wow, what a pain. I'm done with right. this. And so if you don't touch them, they keep smoking. Yes, yeah. yes. And But if you can do this for hundreds of thousands of people, you start learning what works. And what we see, um, I'm stealing this idea from Joffrey Swade, who's one of the giants in our field. Years mm. ago, he said, we're too focused on choices. We need to focus on goals. Like, you know, people don't say things like, I want an MBA. That's that's what I want to do. Or it, it, they want to have a successful career. They want to have a good life. They want to provide for their children. That's their goal. Like, that's what they're actually trying to do. Marketing was never able to look at anything of that level of generality because you'd need 15 different data sets that come from different places. But now you have people with their phones and their right. Google searches. And as long as these data can be anonymized, and this is a... Yeah. Our, our student, Donna Turgeman, who just graduated, she just went back to Israel uh, to take a job. Her dissertation is about online privacy with scalable data. Like, how can you tell people, please let us access what's coming off your phone and we guarantee you that we can't use it against you. It's for your benefit. Because I wouldn't, right now, I wouldn't trust if somebody said, trust us, we're going to help you make better decisions. We just want to know everything you're doing and everything you're looking at. I'd be like, no way. But I do see a future where within, with suitable anonymization and maybe fractional designs, like we take out a few things from you and a few things from me and using data fusion, we can right. stitch it all together. 
we can actually um, give people the kind of information that let them achieve their goals at much lower here. overhead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like for no, instance, that's fascinating. Like, yeah, that's fascinating because. In, if you know in the consumer behavior or the psychology or the sociology literature, goal-seeking uh, behavior or goal-oriented uh, uh, tasks uh, have uh, been studied, but somehow in quantitative marketing, uh, you know, with the available data, which are more revealed preferences, yes. we, were, we were more constrained to study what we have. And that may explain Geoffrey Swait's uh, frustration at us restricting our studies to choices. But now with the Google search data, mobile search data, we also know their intent. What were they searching? What were they trying to solve? And also with smart speakers now, people can have a dialogue and then you can really unearth what is the motivation behind their uh, trying to look up a page, right? So I think you're right that maybe with all this data, but then balancing it against privacy, there may be some better ways for us to develop marketing models that'll help both the consumer as well as the firm. And ultimately, it'll have a strong consumer welfare uh, implications, right? So that's where you mentioned the public policy. That's a good uh, um, you know, suggestions for the future. Now, we also have a very broad section of uh, audiences for this podcast. You know, We have uh, retail managers, we have general manager, so we have um, public policy officials, they have former students, current students, and researchers. What would your um, uh, suggestions or recommendations be moving forward post-pandemic where uh, we are entering a new normal where lots of things will be hybrid? And uh, you know, what would you suggest to them if from a learning perspective, from a growth perspective? Well, those, are, those sound similar, but <laughs> they, in practice, they could be quite quite uh, different um you know just the the normal the nerd answer the standard one right now is data is eating the world and right. you know it used to be that many schools still do this you get six weeks of data science or statistics as it used to be called and i think that's so grossly inadequate to go out right. into the business world or, or any job today you're going to be confronted with data-driven decision making and right. the more you can be ready for that and take part in it and just swim right with it, the better off you're going to fit uh, into a lot of jobs. I, I also think that this whole idea of you go to school and then you're done with school and then you work, that's really like a outdated. Yeah, it's like a yeah. lifelong learning thing. And frankly, I think in 20 or 30 years, it'll be like, you need to learn Python. Here's a course that you can pick it up as you learn on the side, like on your job. It's the whole idea of, I need to go back to college and sit in a room to learn Python. That's going to seem silly. So the ability to teach people at scale and to have immersive learning environments. I, I Again, I think this is the best time in history. The pandemic was horrible, but it has grossly accelerated the development of self-motivated, self-contained learning when it's convenient for you. And that's right. something we've never been able to provide for people before. It's, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. And also the learning and working and implementing seems to be more seamless right now, right? So yes. you can learn at the same time and you can do it. And uh, some of uh, us in the MBA program and at different business school programs, we talk about experiential learning. So it also fits into that uh, um, mode of things. So, but thank you so much, Fred. I think this has been wonderful. And getting insights from you and your suggestions and your pointers for the future for our audience. 
Um, good luck with your continuing research and uh, hopefully we can get to know more about your research in the years to come. Thank you so much, Fred. You too. Thanks for having me.
Thank you.